Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 15, reading verses 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word this morning, we also come and we confess that it's only in your light that we see light. And so teach us your way this morning. Lead us and guide us. We ask that you send out your light and your truth and that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Many months ago, we entered into the letter of Romans, a long, one of the longest of uh, Paul's epistles to this young church in the city of Rome that was fractured by various divisions. But yet those divisions are not addressed until much later in the epistle. And we find that particularly in chapters 14 and 15. And it is because this tension was not addressed until much later in the epistle that many people think that this is just simply tangential material that is really not that important. Paul is addressing some specific attitudes, some specific behaviors, some specific actions that were dividing the church. But what's really important for us to consider, that as Paul is dealing with these very specific contextual things, and they're things that were going on then and there some thousands of years ago, but yet we're also addressed here and now. Because what was happening in this early church is that non-essential matters, that is cultural matters, about which Scripture does not clearly speak about what practices we are are to accept, that those non-essential matters were being raised to essential status. And so what was happening is two parties had formed in this young church, and Paul labels them the weak and the strong. The weak were passing judgment on the strong because they did not join them in abstaining from certain behaviors and certain practices. The strong then were growing arrogant and despising the weak, becoming tired of their judgment. 
And so for many modern Christians, we look at these dynamics and we don't feel like this part of Romans is incredibly important to us. What exactly does God have to say to me from here? But it's critical to recognize that as Paul addresses these very gritty details, that we are being addressed by God. Because he pulls together all the threads of his argument, all the way from chapter 1 and the predicament of human sin, and then in chapters 3 through 11, talking about the enormity of the grace of God. And now he's applying it, all of that vertical truth of what it means to be reconciled to God by the free grace of Jesus. All of that vertical relationship that's established by Jesus is now being applied horizontally and to this concrete and tangible fellowship, this place. And this is what the gospel ultimately calls us to. It's not simply to being reconciled to God, but also being reconciled to one another and being this picture of this new humanity that God is forming on the face of the earth in anticipation of the world to come. And so he draws it all together here. And he does so because there's something critical at stake in our midst. And that is the unity, the peace, and the harmony of the church. And Paul knew that if Christianity was to be established in the world, that the means of its witness was to take place through the church. And so he writes this incredibly dense Incredibly beautiful, long epistle. And it has many different reasons and purposes, but one of them was to take all of this beautiful theology and to apply it to some very mundane and ordinary details where Christians needed to live together in harmony and peace. Because what Paul perceived and what we can know about ourselves today is that the weak and the strong that both parties were washing out the very foundations on which the church is built. The goal was for that small congregation and for our congregation to live together in peace. And Paul captures it in verses 5 and 6. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. And so with one voice, this is the goal, a descriptive image of Jew and Gentile, people from different classes, people from different ethnic backgrounds, people from different social ranks, people coming together and with one voice offering praise to God in and through Jesus Christ that this was the goal, that there be harmony and peace. And so there's one important question for us to ask and to answer this morning ahead of our celebration, our unifying celebration at the Lord's table, is how exactly do we support and sustain that unity in a local church? What does it take? There's three brief things that we find here in these 13 verses. But first, what Paul will address in verses 1 and 2 is that there is a spiritual ethic that sustains unity. If you follow with me, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor 
for his good. And Paul lays out here the key to unity is this spiritual ethic in which the members of the Christian community are not out for their own self-interest. Paul says that we have an obligation to our neighbors. That's he's speaking of our neighbors inside the church, fellow members of the church that we share that space with, and our obligation is to build them up. That is to seek their encouragement in Jesus. And we are especially to do so, he says here, for those who are weak. This means that at the heart of our orientation to church, to this place, the heart of our orientation to this place is that we focus upon others. And so this presses back against us in our own cultural moment where we tend to ask the primary questions of what am I getting? What am I receiving from this place? And we're here pressed with a different set of questions. That my orientation to the church is to be how can I build up my brothers and sisters? How can I serve them? Because Paul is orienting us to a mindset that doesn't center upon ourselves and upon our needs. In fact, he would argue that ourselves and our needs are primarily addressed and met when we lay down our lives in the service of other people. And so how can I build up my neighbor? How can I serve them? And this is the spiritual ethic that informs the unified community. And it's one that we always have to pay very careful attention to because it can easily be displaced in the life of any church. When I was living in Northern Virginia, I had a short commute to work, and so I decided that I was going to join the thousands of people every day who rode bicycles to work. I had had some run-ins with the cycling community, so I had mixed emotions about joining this number. They tend to be very aggressive, and they tend to very much defend the rights of the road while also not obeying those road uh, rules and stipulations. But I was going to seek some information and counsel from a local bike store, and so I went to the most famous one, Conti's Bike Shop, Arlington, Virginia, on Wilson Boulevard, walked in, and it was immediate that I didn't fit. I didn't have the right clothes on. I was not a member of the cycling community. I didn't go out on rides on Saturday. And the bike I was interested in didn't have, you know, 27 gears and, you know, the right tires and all kinds of things. So I was trying to get attention from one of the clerks, and I was just clearly being ignored. It's like, okay. I stood for a little while longer awkwardly. I began to asked some questions, but it became increasingly clear that I was not welcome in these kind of sacred precincts, that I had trespassed and transgressed. The clerk was curt, he was disinterested, and he was unhelpful. He just was not interested in the questions that I was asking. There was an arrogance there, and so I remember leaving slightly frustrated because I knew they had the knowledge that I wanted. I knew they understood these things beyond me, but I just felt completely dismissed. And so in my own little self-righteous pity party on the way out to the car, it then struck me as a professional Christian, how many people have that experience in church? How many people experience that rather than that spiritual ethic that Paul lays out for us here? 
where we're not oriented to ourselves, we're not oriented to our interest and what pleases us, but rather we're oriented to the needs of others. Because friends, this is the defining feature of the Christian community and its spiritual ethic that undergirds its unity and undergirds its welcome that it shows to other people. And this leads us to the second point, because it's not just that there's a spiritual ethic that we play out, but secondly, we see there's also a spiritual dynamic that sustains our unity. You see, because Paul doesn't just simply exhort the congregation to to be unified and to not seek their own pleasure, but rather follow in verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's an odd quotation of Psalm 69, but Psalm 69 was used repetitively in the early church as a prayer of Jesus. And he's quoting as if Jesus is using these words that the reproaches of you, of you, God, have fallen on me. And this is referring to Jesus' passion. And so the spiritual dynamic at work here is that Jesus is the one who lays aside his life. He disadvantages himself in order to advantage you and me. He takes on suffering and reproach that we deserved, and he shoulders that himself so that we can be reconciled to God. We are then being called to meditate upon him and upon his work on our behalf, and then to embody that same example, to imitate his way that puts the interest of another person ahead of our own personal interest, that we don't please ourselves, but we seek to please the good of our neighbor around us. He repeats this dynamic again in verse 7. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so the welcome that we're to show to other human beings and to the fellowship of the church, those who profess faith in Jesus, and even those who are outside who are just curious, that we show welcome in the same way that we've been graciously welcomed by God, that the way God freely receives us, the way that he doesn't count our sins against us, he's not sitting there tallying them up, considering whether you'll be good enough today, but the fact that he obliterates them, that he sends Jesus into the world, and when Jesus dies on the cross, he exhausts your sins. That's the welcome God has shown you. And so that is to inform the welcome we show to other people. We're to be gracious and hospitable, kind and welcoming, because that's the kindness and the grace that we've been shown in Jesus. And friends, this is the spiritual dynamic, the one that has to be at work in our midst. And in church circles, and there are any number of conferences every year in which pastors are invited to attend, and typically what's discussed at those conferences are very important things. And one of the discussions is always about, is your church Christ-centered? It's a great point of evaluation always for pastors and elders. Is our church Christ-centered? But typically when we're assessing that, we're looking at certain formal things. We're evaluating the preaching. Does the preaching lift Jesus up? Certainly an important part of being Christ-centered. 
or we're looking at the liturgy and we're asking whether the liturgy is Christ-centered, whether it points people to Jesus or whether it points to something outside. Those are the formal things about being Christ-centered. But there's also something very important that Paul's talking about here, something that is practically oriented to being Christ-centered. And it's the culture of the community. Is this spiritual dynamic at work? Are we as people meditating upon the grace of God that's given to us in Jesus, the welcome we've received, and then showing that same welcome? Are we meditating upon the fact that Jesus didn't please himself, but laid aside all of his privileges, emptied himself of everything but love, as Wesley says, and pours out his life as a sacrificial offering? Are we then stepping into that place with others? This is practically what it means to be Christ-centered. And that these dynamics of meditating upon the grace of God and then embodying them have to be at work constantly, week over week, and year over year for the church to be sustained in its unity. That unity is not something just formal. It's not in a statement. It's not something that you get to do last year. It's something that has to be actively curated as we experience and participate in the grace of God that's ours in Jesus. This is the spiritual dynamic. But finally, in sustaining this unity, in verses 8 through, eight, eight through 13, we see that we also have to be captured by the larger goal of God. Paul begins this in verse 8, For I tell you, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Many people lose the argument here. Where exactly is Paul heading? But in these verses, and from 8 through 13, he's specifically addressing the division between Jew and Gentile. And these were the communities of the weak and the strong, as we laid out the previous two weeks. And Paul's explaining that Jesus became a servant of the circumcision. That is, he became a servant of the Jewish nation. He was a Jew. And he came, he was born to a Jewish family, and he obeyed and followed the law. And he did all that. And the Old Testament promise is clear that God was going to bless the family of Abraham and that in blessing the family of Abraham, God was going to bless all the families of the earth. And so Paul quotes from the Psalms, Psalm 117. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He also quotes from the writings, the broader history. He quotes from across the Old Testament to make the point that Jesus became a Jew he took on human flesh. He was the God-man in our midst, and he suffered and died, and he did so for one reason. He did so that he might reconcile Jew and Gentile to God, that this was the larger purpose, and this was the larger promise of God always. It was not so that everyone would become Jewish, as perhaps some of the weak wanted but if we are going to have a sustained unity in the church, it means that we have to accept and embrace and know and understand the larger purpose of God, 
that he is gathering a family from every tribe, that he's gathering a family from every tongue, that he's gathering a family from every nation, and that he brings people from all those corners of the world into the church of various backgrounds, of various classes, of various understandings, of various colors, and that our job is to show the same welcome that God shows to sinners, creating that one new family. And so in the church, we have to keep that larger goal always just in front of us. Otherwise, we'll descend in becoming just some kind of club or some kind of museum, something that's closed off and not porous, something that's not living and responding to God. Because friends, there is that spiritual ethic, that spiritual ethic that we have an obligation to not please ourselves. And there is to be a spiritual dynamic that is meditating upon all the grace that is ours in Jesus and then fleshing that out in our relationship with people around us. And then also keeping that larger goal, that God's great plan is to unite all things in heaven and earth, creating one family of those who believe in Jesus. And this is what sustains. It actually also creates, it upholds, and it forges, and it nurtures, and it cultivates the unity of many people coming from diverse backgrounds to sing God's praise with one voice. And so let's ask God for his help, that that be the reality here, that there be welcome, that there be kindness, that we not seek to please ourselves, and that we would know this unity of celebrating God's grace in one voice. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have set us apart as your own, that you've made us your own people, and you've done so freely by a grace that we don't deserve. Before the foundations of the world, you set us apart. You chose us in your son, Jesus, and we are yours. And so, God, incline our hearts and turn us, that meditating upon the grace of God, we would show that grace to others around us, that we not seek to please ourselves, but rather we embody the way of Jesus in our life with one another. Turn us from selfish pursuits and selfish ambition to seek the good of our neighbor and their building up. Help us in all of our weakness. We thank you for all of your promises to us. They have been confirmed in Jesus, that he did become one who was a servant of the circumcision in order to confirm all of the promises. And all the promises are now ours. And so we look in faith, and particularly to your promise and your welcome that we come and that we ask and that we pray in Jesus' name. And so hear us as we come this morning. And so let's join our hearts, silent prayer this morning for the following concerns. Let's pray for God's saving power to be known among the nations, especially praying for our mission partner, Kurt Nelson, president of East West Ministries. Ask God to give Kurt wisdom and endurance as he guides the ministries of East West in over 50 countries around the world.
And let's pray for our local ministry partners at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. Ask God to use the faculty and the staff to provide well-trained and competent pastors to churches in our nation and around the world. Let's pray for all in authority, especially for our president, Joe Biden. Pray that he will promote justice, that he will restrain evil, and that he will uphold integrity and truth in our country during this difficult time. Let's pray for Jonathan Waddell and his family while he is away on deployment with the Navy. Ask God to be a refuge for Jonathan and to support and comfort Abigail and their children in his absence. Let's pray for all those who grieve, the sick, and all those who are suffering in our community this morning. Let's remember Barb Day, Sue Forsyth, Gar Gorganius, Hector and Vielna Harima, Wayne Noble, Sandy Reynolds, and Jewel Smith. And let's give thanks for a successful surgery to remove Louis Fosnick's central line and ask God to continue to bless and restore his body. And let's pray for all the children and youth of Christ Church, asking God to work in their hearts that they may never remember a day apart from Jesus Christ. And let's close saying the prayer our Savior taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.